uh, would, would be closing. Uh, by we, I mean the, uh, our, our local uh, association, but not the Gateway Network, uh, but our local association. Uh, there's, this, there's a sense, if you know what church planting is, it's just starting new churches. You know, it's, you, we plant them because it sounds spiritual. Um, but it's starting new churches. And every church that's been around uh, started at some point. It was planted at some point. So there's nothing uh, all that, um, you know, super weird about it. Uh, but this church was planted 10 years ago. We, we celebrated our 10th anniversary. And there's an expectation. There's a certain culture that, that goes in church. I'm not a planter. I didn't plant this church. Uh, I, I went through a lot of church planting training in, in my younger years. Uh, thinking maybe God wanted me to do that, and I and I felt uh, called a different direction. But there was this uh, this idea that, and, and it's still there, and it still permeates sort of the culture and idea of how you get churches started. That if you follow all the right steps, if you do all these certain things, uh, the church will explode, and you'll see all kinds of people come to Christ and become Christians, and 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 your church will be big, and you'll have plenty of money. And, and a lot of these models, they, they were all built around booming suburbs. And sometimes they might border on gimmicky. Sometimes. Sometimes they're very good. But things are a little different in the city itself. Uh, especially in some of our, our rougher, poor neighborhoods uh, where you could have 500 people coming to church and you still wouldn't be able to pay a pastor's salary. And yet we have this, this mentality that, well, you know, if we give you money to, to start the church for three years, you should be able to reach tons and tons of people and it'll be exciting, it'll be great, and then you'll be on your own. And, and, it, and it doesn't work. We, we, we are so used to the immediacy of sort of the suburban uh, lifestyle sometimes that uh, we don't have the patience to endure what can be a very difficult task in the inner city. We were out distributing uh, goods and, and food and toiletries to the needy uh, in our community in and around downtown last night, uh, a handful of us. And, and one of the things that was amazing, um, you know, some people... Uh, I've seen time and time again, every time I, I go out, I see some of the same faces. Some faces are always new, and, and some faces are, are downcast, and they're depressed, and they're, and they're beat up. And, and yet some people have this positivity about them. They have absolutely nothing, and they, yet they're, they're joyful, and they're thankful, and they're, they're reciting scripture to you. And they have this sense about them that despite their external circumstances, despite how bad uh, it might seem on the surface, despite how rough it might seem that they have it, they're enduring it with a smile. They're enduring it um, with, with a levity that I'm not sure that I have. We look at uh, James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. It, it comes right on the heels of this passage we looked at last week uh, where, where James uh, was, was really making a condemnation toward uh, the rich. That is, those who have so much that they don't really need to rely on God. So it's not necessarily the rich as we think about it, 
but it's, it's people that are comfortable enough that they don't really need to rely on Jesus Christ. And we saw that some of those people, because of their riches, were probably oppressing and, and treating badly a large number of, of the poorer classes, among which would have been a lot of James's readers. We know that, that in this life, though, James doesn't get specific here, but in this life there, there, are, there are trials, there are difficulties. It is, it is hard to live the Christian life. If you want to follow Jesus Christ, it is not going to be easy. The Bible promises tribulations. The Bible promises trials. The Bible promises persecution. And so the Christian life isn't always easy. And yet James says in this passage that even when existence is painful, we must endure with patience. So even when our existence is painful, we must endure with patience. And, and he points to us three things that we must do to endure with patience. And so we're going to take a look at those uh, this morning. Um, so first thing that James says, that if we are really going to endure what is oftentimes a difficult, sinful trial of a life, we need to reflect on Jesus' return. There's a sense in the Christian experience in which we know this world is messed up. And it pains us. Sometimes that mess up comes from our own hearts and our own minds. And sometimes it comes from the world around us. James writes in verses 7 and 8, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains? You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So the beginning of this verse gives the overarching command. It's really the theme of this paragraph, that we have to be patient. And yet he, he moves us a direction which is, we could say, eschatological or a fancy theological word for thinking about the things at the end of history, the last days. He tells us that we need to hold our patience until the Lord's coming. He's giving us a sense of time. Be patient until. But it has the effect of drawing our attention to uh, the event and fixing our gaze on it. Like I said, we, in the previous paragraph we looked at, we saw that James announced the condemnation on the rich and those who were so financially comfortable that they might miss their own need for God. And we got the sense that some of those uh, in the category of the rich were oppressing the poor and the recipients of James' letter are most likely uh, majority poor. And so that we get this command to be patient in this context, I think is significant but then again, James does not specifically mention the, the money issue again here. And, and so I think that he is also broadening our horizon a bit, that this world is full of evil. And for those of us who are in Christ, that evil weighs on our consciences. And so like the, the prophet Habakkuk, we, we cry out, Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? 
Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. You feel that way sometimes. You feel like you, you look out on the world and, and, and there's a, uh, we're surrounded by evil. We, we, we can turn on the news and, and one day it's, it's some guy uploading a, a video of himself killing a random stranger on Facebook and, and the next day it's a, you know, it's a terrorist attack in some place in the world and, and it feels like there, there is no good news. It feels like uh, things are falling apart. And, and when we're young, and I still like to pretend I am sometimes, we, we can ignore it, but, but eventually, the, the more we live, the, the closer it gets to home. Uh, uh, eventually, it, it becomes somebody we know, or somebody who lived just a street over, or you know, it was the friend of a friend, and, and suddenly those, those tragedies become personal, and we, we have a hard time ignoring them, and we just want to cry out, God, why? Why is this going on? Why is this enduring? Why, why is this persist? Where is your justice, God? Where is your judgment, God? What is going on? And James says, be patient until the coming of the Lord. And so in doing that, he's, he's reminding us, look, Jesus is coming. He's thinking about the end times here, and, he's, and much of what James has, has counseled in this letter, you could say, has a, a, a sort of eschatological vision to it. He is uh, suggesting that if we have a, a future focus, if we have a, um, our mindset set on a world to come, it's going to cause us to live our lives completely differently than the way the world typically lives their lives. And so in a way, the coming of the Lord, the coming of Jesus is the light at the end of the tunnel that lets us hold a little longer. And it's also the reason why we hold on. So it's not just the thing that helps us, but it's also the thing we do it for. James says, see how the farmer Maybe a better translation would be, check this. And, and James draws his attention to this farmer who, who likewise needs to wait patiently. He waits on the, the precious fruit of the earth. And similarly, the, the farmer has to wait until something happens, specifically until the fruit receives the early and, and latter rains. So in, in, in first century Palestine, that James's readers would have been familiar with, your crop growth depended on two different rainy seasons, a, a fall rain and a spring rain. Their, their harvest season doesn't line up with what we think of the United States. And, and if you didn't get those, those two rains, uh, you, know, you had a drought, you, know, you had a bad, bad crop season, they didn't have irrigation uh, like we have in giant machines that water all the plants for them. Um, but they were pretty much guaranteed. But until you got that that autumn rain, I, I assume, to, to soak the ground and let the seeds really dig in and, and grow their roots. And then that, that spring rain that allowed the, the fruit to ripen and, and come alive. Until you received those, those two seasons, the fruit wasn't ready. And yet, 
year after year, for the most part, you could count on that cyclical arrangement of the seasons happening. And so just as the farmer, look, he can't eat it in the fall, he can't eat it in the winter, he can't eat it at the beginning of the spring, but if he's patient and he waits, then eventually he's going to have a bountiful crop. Even more so for those of us who are Christians, our waiting patiently will be fulfilled. Because even more likely than the seasons will come and go is the fact that Christ will return. So we, we believe that Jesus came because this world was sinful, because this world was evil, because this world had rebelled against God and, and, and rejected his kingship, rejected his authority over uh, our individual lives. And so we were left stranded in a, in a state of condemnation because any rebel, any traitor deserves a, a death penalty. Just, just look at the laws of, of most nations on earth. That's how we deal with traitors. That's how we deal with turncoats as we, we execute them historically. And so we stand under a spiritual death sentence because we've rebelled against God and we've rejected his good rule. And we've said that we want to rule our own lives our own way. Jesus came in the midst of that, that while we were rebelling against God, he loved us. He died for us so that those who place their trust in him can receive forgiveness, not on the basis of their good deeds, but on the basis of Christ's one good deed on the cross. Death couldn't hold him. He raised from the dead and ascended to the heaven next to the Father so that he could become king and judge. But he promised that he will return again. In a way, this is a season of repentance. This is a, a time and a space in which, yes, it's painful. Yes, it's difficult to see this evil that's just kind of running amok around the world. But God is being patient, allowing many sinners to turn back to him. But for those of us who have turned to him and we long for the writing of this world, we have a confidence, we should, we should have a confidence that Jesus is returning. And in his return, he will make things right. We will reap that harvest, but patience. I imagine for the farmer, the crops were precious. Indeed, it was life and not death. There's no supermarkets. There's no, you know, Dave's. There's no giant eagle. You know, this word precious is a word that's usually used of jewels and, and things like gold and silver, things of very high worth. And if, if those crops growing is the difference between you eating and you starving, if it's the difference between you living and you dying, yeah, those things are precious, aren't they? So what's the precious fruit of Jesus coming? I think justice for one, fits the context. Jesus is going to bring justice. He is going to right the wrongs of the world. There's going to be a relief from oppression. But certainly even more than that, perhaps life from death. Just as those farmers' crops were the difference between he and his family living and not dying, Jesus' return is the difference for us Christians between life Spiritually, eternally, with God forever, and no life. James 
and then advocates patience. And, and in verse 8, the beginning of that, he says, you also be patient. Establish your hearts, he says, going on, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. This, it's a really weird, how you establish your heart? It's kind of a weird expression, isn't it? And, and usually the, this word is used in a sense uh, in, in the New Testament to, like, to strengthen or to, to buttress or to fortify. Um, and it's usually used metaphorically of people. Um, it can be used of resolve, like when Jesus resolved that he was going to go to Jerusalem, even though he knew he was going to his death, he sort of steeled himself for what was happening. I think that would be a, a good way to, to think of it here. James is saying, steel yourselves. Establish your hearts. Steel yourselves. It acknowledges that sometimes the present circumstances are undesirable, they're hard, they're painful, but there is an end in sight. And that end is because the Lord's coming is at hand. It's not just assured, but it's near. And a lot of Christians get tripped up. But how is Jesus coming near? It's been, it's been 2,000 years, James. But what you have to understand is that this is the last season. This is the August before the September harvest. If you, if you look at the entire history of the universe, the entire history of earth, however exact long it lasts, this is the final season before we enjoy the fruit of the harvest. This is the intermittent time. This is the, the piece of space and time in between when Jesus has dealt the death blow to sin and when he comes to plant his victory flag. The end is assured. He's marching on his timetable, and this is the final season. And so it is, in that way, very near. And so we as Christians need... And this is, this is hard for us. This is hard, I think, in... Uh, a digital age in which we are, we are used to immediacy. We're, we're used to being able to solve our problems so quickly. If I don't have an answer, I ask Google. If I, if, I, if I don't have something at home, I can just fly to the store or click it on Amazon. I, mean, it, it, I can solve so many of my problems so quickly, so easily. We get used to this sort of immediacy of everything. And I think we lose our ability to be patient. I've read that some uh, researchers are studying boredom and how our inability to be bored anymore might be stunting our thinking, stunting our ability to be creative and come up with new ideas. There's sometimes boredom, not having, that feeling of not having anything to do. You know, forces us to get creative, forces us to think of new solutions, think of new ideas. We don't deal with that anymore, right? Because when we get bored, we pick up our phone, we pick up our tablet. We, there's always something to do. And so maybe more than even James's audience, this idea of patience is hard for us. Even though we don't face the kind of trials, for the most part, most of us don't face the kind of trials they face. But you will. 
because it's guaranteed of Christians. Peter and Paul both warn of trials and persecution to come. You will, if you have not already, endure a dark spell. That's not happy. No one likes to talk about that. That's not a rah-rah point for a sermon, but you're going to endure that, that, let me say that differently. You will go through or encounter dark periods. Whether you endure them or not will depend very much on what you do with things like James 5, 7 through 11. Do you steal yourself knowing that Jesus' return is guaranteed, it's sure, and it's near? Well, the second thing that that James brings up in terms of how we have this patience. And I'm going to flip this around. He puts it in the negative. I'm going to put it in the positive. But we need to hold tight to fellow Christians. In order to endure the trials and and, and difficulties of this life, we need to hold tight to fellow Christians. James writes in verse 9, it almost sounds out of place, but it's, to, it's in here together for a reason. James had a reason for putting it here. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. What is this that he's saying? What is, what is, the kind of, what, what is he trying to get at here? Um, this idea of, of complaining against somebody is, is a pretty rare word. And, and it usually indicates like a groaning or a sighing. It's not something that it comes out verbally. This is an internal complaint of sorts. And usually, very often, um, it's used in places... Well, take a look at a couple from uh, the book of Isaiah that, that we read from earlier this morning. In Isaiah 35.10... The Greek version of the Old Testament uses the same word in Isaiah 35, 10. Uh, and the ransomed and the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be on their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy. And sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Or Isaiah 51, 11. Isaiah 51.11 reads, And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be on their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sign shall flee away. The same words. This word often uh, picks up an idea of the end of the ages. And so you, you kind of see how it's fitting in the context a little bit here. It's, it's talking about the return of, of the Lord. And there's going to be a sign and a groaning that's expected in this last age as we kind of feel the pressure of a a world of sin weighing down on us from time to time. The idea, again, is, is this sort of inner weight. Paul can talk about all creation groaning or sign as it waits the redemption of Jesus Christ. So then how is it that, that James is saying 
Don't grumble against one another or complain against one another in some translations. And I think if we're real, we know that when we're under great pressure, when we're under great trial, our tendency is to turn on one another. We turn on our spouses, our girlfriends, our boyfriends, our, our brothers, our sisters. It's really tough to talk over this morning. Um, I love little kids. This, that's just... Um, and we, we turn our arrows against each other. We're not the enemy to each other. And yet when the enemy seems inconquerable, when the enemy just seems too large and too big and we're, and we're weighed down, we turn our gripes against one another. And what James is saying is that absolutely cannot happen to us as Christians. Jesus is returning soon. And our fellow Christians are being renewed by the same spirit that we are. And, and sighing or groaning about those being remade in Christ's image is one of two things. It's either a lack of faith, we, we, we either don't believe that they're going to be remade, or it's a lack of patience, that we're fed up with the process taking so long to complete. But you can't have it both ways. It's either a lack of faith or it's a lack of patience. And in any event, this command is given for the purpose of avoiding judgment. He says, don't grumble against one another so that you may not be judged. Again, Jesus is returning soon. In fact, he's near. So how will we be judged? Well, the best explanation is that Christians, too, are going to face a judgment before Jesus Christ. We'll be covered by his blood, and so we, we will be pronounced righteous, not because of us, but because of what Christ did, and yet at the same time, we're going to have to give an account before our Lord of what we did with the life he gave us. James doesn't belabor the point or stress it beyond what's necessary. So I, I don't think there's anything more to it than that. But we have to understand that even us Christians are going to face a reckoning. We're going to face an accounting. Yes, we will be saved. But we're going to have to look our Savior in the face and tell him how we lived. And he knows. And so how did you treat your brothers and sisters in Christ during the dark seasons for you personally or, or for your church as a whole. We complain about carpets and organs and, and, and all kinds of crazy stuff, and, and yet there are Christians in countries who are just trying this morning to not die. And I guarantee you that they're not fighting about carpet and organs and, and, and things like that. 
Because if they do, it will be their destruction, won't it? They, they, they can't do that. Uh, a small gathering of two or three Christians in North Korea, they can't, they can't grumble about the food that's being served on the, on the table. They, they can't complain about that. They, they don't have the ability. They don't have that luxury. It's too dangerous. And I think that we need to understand, even when we don't face that level of persecution, although we need to be ready if and when it happens, even when we don't face that level of an intensity of persecution, we have to realize that we still are living in a world order that is oppressive, that it is characterized and plagued by sin, and that we are liable to to falling victim to it at any time. And so we need one another. And when we're inwardly griping or complaining or sighing and being weary with one another, instead of being weary with this world order, we lose our, our, our probably our strongest weapon in the fight. <clears throat> Put another way, Jesus died for his church. He died for his bride. And when you are grumbling or complaining or sighing against the bride of Jesus Christ, it's, it's not easy. If, you, if, you, if your best friend gets married and you complain about his wife, it's probably not going to go well for your friendship. If, if your best friend is, in, is engaged and, and you sit there and, 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 and bite and gripe about her fiancé, it's, she's going to go to his defense. It's just, that's how it works. You are going to lose your friend or you're going to ruin the friendship in some way. If you're going to be a good friend, you have to love your friend's spouse. You, 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 you might not always see eye to eye. You might not always get along. But if you want to maintain that relationship, you've got to be Loving not only of your friend, but your friend's spouse. Well, in the same way, you cannot say you love Jesus and not love his church. You, you cannot say you love Jesus and, and spit on his bride. It's not an option. We've been called into one body and one family, and we desperately need one another. And we live such lives of ease sometimes, I think, in 21st century America that we don't realize how desperately we need each other. But we do. Well, the third thing that James points us to in enduring with patience is that we need to trust that there is a reward. So James says in verses 10 through 11, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So verse 10, it says... James says, take hold of the pattern 
uh, of suffering and patience. Let's be a very literal translation. Take hold of the pattern. He's not merely saying, look at this example. He's giving an active command, uh, an exhortation. He says, I want you to look at these prophets and I want you to adopt their manner of living as your own. In the Old Testament, few, if any, prophets received universal acclaim. As you read through the prophets, especially the, the, the books that, that tell more biography and life of the prophets, and, and, and uh, because some of the books, it's mostly just their prophecy, as opposed to what happened in and around those prophecies. But when you, when you read that, you'll see that their ministries were at best up and down. At least, and that's just with respect to acceptance and honor. Um, more often than not, their, their messages fell on deaf ears or were just flat out rejected. And that often came at great personal cost to the prophet. And that's despite the fact that they actually spoke in the name of the Lord. The examples um, didn't need to be spelled out to James's readers because they were all very familiar. They were writing to, again, Jewish Christians living outside of Judea, um, but they would have been very familiar with the Old Testament. They were very familiar with the, the stories, what happened to the prophets, and they would have been uh, familiar also with some of the, uh, how should we say, the, the historical and, 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 and legendary uh, stories that were told about the prophets after they died all of which suggested that many of them faced horrible, horrible fates, like Isaiah being sawn in two. So what's the, what's the connection with judgment? What's the connection with judgment here? Well, the prophets often proclaim judgment, even proclaim the nearness of the day of the Lord. And in, in pointing to those things, they still endured scorn. They endured torture. They endured death. They endured ridicule. They endured not being able to live the life that they perhaps wanted to live. Called away from the things that they felt like they were supposed to do. Uh, they had ordinary professions in some cases, and yet they were called to abandon those professions for the sake of God's calling. But then James says, behold, or check this, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. He's pointing to sort of a, a known fact. Like when he says behold, he's saying like, you know this. I'm just reminding you of this. And the basic assessment is that the person who perseveres through great trials is blessed. In fact, the idea for endure here is used almost universally to signify enduring worldly troubles for the sake of Christ. In fact, Jesus himself uses it in that very same sense. In, in Matthew, um, he uses it twice. Once in what's oftentimes called the, the great tribulation. And he talks about all the, the bad things that were going to come upon the world and, and how 
difficult it was going to be for those who loved him. But he said, those who endure to the end will be saved. In the Beatitudes, he says, blessed are those who endure persecutions and trials for my name. And then James moves to the specific example of Job. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord. Now, Job's story's got a lot of different teaching points. I assume most of you have read through it at one point or another. Maybe you haven't. Um, For those who haven't, you know, Job was a righteous man. He had done everything right. He had fame. He had fortune. He had all good things, family. And the Lord allows it to all be removed from him. Because he wanted to prove a point to Satan. That Job would worship him, even if he didn't have those things. Yet, Job is never made aware of why these things are being taken away from him. They're just gone. And and Job becomes rather miserable, um, as you can imagine. And Job is not perfect. If you read through... Uh, the book, you'll see that Job begins to despair. He begins to complain. Uh, He wishes that he had never been born. He actually says, I wish I had been stillborn. My life would have been better if I had just died the day I came out. He gets pretty awful. He gets pretty bitter uh, in his wrestlings with God. But through it all, He remains faithful. Despite his imperfections, despite his complaints, he never gives up believing in God and worshiping God. And in the end, he is rewarded by God for his faithful endurance. Now, Job is not a perfect model for us, but James isn't trying to say he's a perfect model. What he's pointing to, though, is that Job was steadfast, imperfectly steadfast, but he was steadfast nonetheless. And the end result was that the Lord rewarded him. The Lord had compassion on him and relieved his burdens. He was merciful to him and and took away his pains. And he says the same thing then is true for us. God's providential end of the episode of of Job's life was to bring great comfort to Job. And it would be unfair and trite and, and, and a lie to suggest that our hardships in this life will result in goodness in this life. The Bible does not promise that. Anyone who tries to promise you that on TV or from any pulpit, turn them off. Because they're lying to you. But but James isn't making that point. He's saying that God's goodness and compassion to Job, which happened to manifest itself in Job's present life, because God is capable of doing that. If he chooses to do that, it's just not a promise to all of us all the time. He said, but... 
just as sure as, as, as Job was blessed by God in this life, we know that we will be blessed at Jesus' return. There will be riches that this world can't comprehend. There will be blessings that we can't even possibly fathom when we see our Savior face to face, when we see him eye to eye, when our world is illuminated by his great glory, when he is our king and we are his humble servants, when this world is put in right order, blessings will abound beyond Job's wildest imagination. And so not only is there, there a hope that we're looking forward to Jesus coming, but also there is a hope that we know that the pains of this life will be reversed, that there will be a reward for our patient endurance. And so we endure even with patience and even through a painful existence, and we do that in no small part By reflecting on the return of Jesus Christ, by holding tightly to his bride, our church family, and trusting that there is a reward for that patience endurance at the end. Let's pray. Father, uh, we get so caught up in the little tiny things of this world. We are so easily amused and entertained. And we forget you. Forgive us, God, that we forget you. Forgive us, God, that we endure this world sometimes by pretending it doesn't exist and... Sometimes by just acquiescing to its demands. But may we be your faithful witnesses. May we feel the weight of sin. May we stand up under it by your grace, looking always to your Son as our Lord and our King. In his name we pray. Amen.